Hello, you're listening to The Living Revolution, where you can get today's fix of synthetic biology, one of the most exciting and innovative fields across all the scientific disciplines. This podcast is brought to you by the Manchester iGEM 2021 team, with support from the University of Manchester and the Manchester Institute of Biotechnology. Today's guest is Professor John Ward, the Programme Director for Synthetic Biology MRes at University College London. He has an incredible set of expertise in the field, and we're appreciative that he's been able to share that with us today. Thank you for tuning in. We hope you enjoy the show. So, um, what do you find to be the most um, exciting current innovations in synthetic biology at the minute? Oh, wow. Well, I suppose the big project that's going on at the moment in synthesizing the yeast genome with the understanding and trying to remove and add in and change lots of bits of it. And in doing so, when they put it back together bit by bit, maybe one engineered chromosome in amongst the native ones, discovering, oh, well, we need to go back and retweak it. And the ultimate aim of that, able to recode all of the bits of it and maybe remove bits we thought, no, this looks like a little bit of junk, let's remove it, and then discover that, uh, well, that wasn't junk, it actually controlled this bit. But by putting it all together with all these different elements changed or tweaked and having lots of different versions, we can then see, right, well, this version with all these changed grew like this, but it didn't do this. But this one, so we will, I think that will be a new great leap forward in understanding how eukaryotic cells work in many different aspects, their replication, their metabolism. Also, because yeast is a eukaryote, how do mitochondria communicate with the nucleus? Mitochondria are hugely important and because they're difficult to study in human cell terms, they're sort of we don't know enough about them, but a lot of genetic diseases involve mitochondria in humans. And like I say, there's a huge amount of traffic all the way through all these things. So that area, that is, that's real synthetic biology because that's being able to synthesize genomes in all the modules, put them together, and also understand biology enough to say, let's, let's remove all the stop codons that are coded by this and have a version where we can put in something different and new. So that, that whole area, understanding a, um, a functioning eukaryotic cell by being able to recode its genome and then iterate, learn from that and do it again and again. The other thing I mentioned at the end of that was um, being able to manipulate the codon choices in a cell so that you then say, right, we can manipulate it so that all the genes just use these two stop codons because there are three stop codons. And then we'll save this third one to be able to code for a new amino acid, completely non-native. And it's not even as simple as that because we then have to get, all right, we have to get all the protein and other elements to recognize that codon when we now put it in the middle of a gene. Being able to then say, right, then get the machinery to be able to recognize that and make uh, an active tRNA with a modified amino acid that's non-native, and all the pathways to get that, or you add it from the outside, so that we can then make a protein, but instead of the normal active site or just engineering, swapping amino acids there, we can put in an amino acid side chain that is non-native. It might contain something that gives quite a new chemical reaction, reactivity. So that's another big area where we can actually now start to design proteins and it's not just protein engineering, it's protein engineering with new chemistry. That is, is going to be a, a big thing, both for making new chemicals, because then you can say, well, a lot of the chemistry that goes on in big 
pharmaceutical plants, um, we can replicate some of that with biology, but we use different routes. But there's some chemistry it's very difficult to, uh, to do inside a cell. Chemistry can do it, but it throws a lot of nasty chemicals around and you've got a lot of disposal costs at the end, which is why we're trying to do a lot of chemistry with biology. But you're not just taking the same step and repeating it in biology. But there are some steps that biology does a completely different way. It'll take a little route around doing those, but it'll still do them at body temperature, room temperature, rather than 400 degrees in a big stainless steel reactor with huge amounts of solvent. So being able to take a protein and say, right, we're going to engineer new chemistry into this, understand how to do that, have the biology to do that, and then be able to do that. We can start to to really do a lot of the chemistry that goes on in you know, big stainless steel vats all around the world, do it in with biology. We need to do a lot more in those things. We need to get the, what you call the intensity. In chemistry, you're often dealing in molar amounts and biology doesn't really deal in that. Biology at the best in the wild deals with sort of millimolar at the most and we're trying to push i mean that is the main thing if we want to supplant a lot of the petrochemical industry we will have to be able to then manipulate things at higher molarities than we do now even if they're just individual reactions but certainly inside a cell or get a cell to so this comes into other techniques like continuous culture is coming back into vogue because well what's the way you can actually make something more productive well you can have a reaction chamber of say one liter but if it runs continuously stuff comes out the end we put stuff in it's not batch where we have to stop it every 24 hours and do something get it ready again we do another batch. now in uh, the big chemist chemical industry the, they do run batch reactors for certain steps but a lot of the petrochemical end in, uh, industry runs continuously so we have to go back to what we were doing in I suppose that was the 50s and the 60s, doing continuous culture, learning the understanding of bacterial yeast physiology, which is now sort of one of those techniques that became sort of, oh, that's old hat, very boring. We're now having to go back and understand, oh, yeah, physiology is very important because we need to be able to take maybe a, a, a productive culture, run it now continuously for hundreds of hours without it getting contaminated, without it losing its ability to do that, which means no plasmid loss. Do we put the genes in the genome? So that's a bit of engineering to do that. But understand the physiology to be able to then get it to work stably for 300 hours. And then that would compete with the chemical industry. So that's another big step forward, being able to engineer very new chemistries into enzymes, then being able to run processes with synthetic modules and all those synthetic cells for enough time to be able to get useful commercial amounts of compound. And that's only in those areas. I mean, when you talk about plants, uh, which I know even less about, that is a whole area which is supremely important because that's where we get all of our food. Uh, however, there are very strict requirements and if not barriers to having uh, genetically engineered plants out in the environment. And that's not been possible across Europe or in the UK apart from one or two test beds that were licensed out at Rothamsted near North London. And one of those was to put the genes for these um, very uh, useful lipids with lots of uh, polyunsaturated things, which no plants actually make. They're made by marine organisms. And when people say, oh, yeah, we eat them with nice fish 
oils. The fish themselves don't make them. The fish accumulate them from the algae they eat. So actually, it's algae in the ocean that make these highly unsaturated lipids that are very beneficial to humans. And through the food chain, we get them. And engineering those pathways into some oil-producing plants has been done at Rothamsted in the labs. And there was a couple of trials that they um, spent almost two or three years trying to get through the various committees and were allowed to do one of those trials. But there are, those are the social and ethical barriers and problems that you will have to face when you start to sort of do your real-world synthetic biology in the future. Let's hope you all go into that. There are lots of uh, social barriers to be able to then say, we've got this great technology, but no one wants us to use it. And that way, you then might be able to have a lot of the things that have to come through fish farming or you know, gathering things on one side of the planet and then shipping it all the way across to another side of the planet just so that we can eat sort of nice things or healthy things. Being able to grow those things in our country may require, um, you know, quite radical genetic engineering and being allowed to do that rather than having a, a sort of just a block against it because, oh, no, anything to do with plants and food, absolutely out. I could go on with other things, but I think those yeah. are some really big, exciting areas, some of which we can't actually do, like the things with plants. And that's it today for our conversation with Professor John Ward. There'll be more in the next episode where he talks about exciting applications of synthetic biology. Remember to follow us on social media at Manchester iGem 2021. Thank you for listening. Have a great day.